0: Welcome to season six of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Magruder. This season, we will hear from researchers, advocates, and folks with lived experience in child welfare. Through these conversations, we hope to gain insight on how to meaningfully co create knowledge alongside those we aim to serve here at the Institute children, families, and workers. Let's get started. Today we're joined by two professors at the Florida State University College of Social Work. Dr. Melissa Rady is the Agnes Flaherty Stoops Professor in Child Welfare and Dr. Shamra Bolstoot is an Associate Professor. Both are affiliates of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare and have conducted a number of studies on child welfare. They recently completed a study examining maternity homes in Florida. Thanks for having us, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate the opportunity. We're also joined by Diane Schofield, the founder and CEO of Hands of Mercy Everywhere, a maternity home that participated in the study. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And finally, Mary Darrow is joining us. Mary is a parent advocate with Selfless Love Foundation and One Voice Impact and was a participant in the maternity home study. Glad to be here. Great, thank you all so much for joining us and talking about this important project. So Melissa and Shamra, as two members of the Institute's affiliate network, you've both worked on a number of significant projects in collaboration with the Institute. What was the impetus behind this particular study?
1: In 2016, I was part of an Institute project that examined the needs and resources of parents aging out of the foster care system. And that project found that mothers lacked basic resources like housing, And moms also welcomed parenting advice and support. And so one of our implications was the potential power of maternity group homes in these moms' lives. But we quickly learned that we really don't have a lot of information or data about how the homes operated or how they contribute to the successes of mothers aging out of care. And so this project built on those findings to try to understand more about maternity group homes. Shamra, how about you?
2: For me, the impetus really is related to my research, which focuses on children and families who are served in out-of-home care settings, with a lot of focus in my work being on residential group care. One of my projects that began with the Florida Institute for Child Welfare, and also this is where I became familiar with Diane, was the development of... Florida's quality accountability system and quality standards for residential care. But when you look at the residential care research, what you find is that we haven't done a sufficient job of really distinguishing between different types of residential care facilities. And we know that there are a wide variety. And so when you try to answer questions about what works and for whom and under what conditions. The research really isn't adequate enough because it's not specific enough in terms of the types of programs and kind of drilling down to that level. And so this really presented an opportunity for us to do that and to focus on maternity group homes as a very specialized population of residential care that's providing a critical service for teens in the foster care system. And so for that reason, it falls right into my area of research. It gave me an opportunity to work with Melissa, who we've been colleagues for a number of years. And then, of course, I was thrilled when Diane agreed to partner with us because, as I mentioned, I was familiar with her from my previous project, and I just knew she was going to bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise and be such a valuable contribution to this work, so a whole lot of reasons for wanting to get involved in this work.
0: Great, thank you both. And I think that's a good example of how oftentimes our research, our evaluation efforts wind up leading us to more questions to try to find the best solutions to some pretty complex problems. So Melissa, could you give us an overview of how you approached the design of the study and a summary of what you found? Sure.
1: So the overarching goal of the project was to gain knowledge about maternity group homes for pregnant and parenting young moms in Florida and the home's impact in preparing moms and their kids to not only survive but thrive and reach their potential as contributing members of society. And I mean it's a lofty goal To reach this goal, we decided on a multi-tiered, mixed methods approach. So both using survey data and qualitative interview data. Our first step, we knew we needed to listen to people with lived experiences and the people on the ground providing services. So we convened an advisory panel of those who had lived in maternity homes in Florida and maternity home service providers. The panel was instrumental in all aspects of the study in terms of informing our recruitment strategies, providing feedback on our data collection instruments, and also interpreting the findings. We really saw the panel as partners in this work. Second, We collected the data required to describe maternity home programs in Florida and their key design features. And so we conducted a comprehensive review of maternity homes in Florida through document searches and also collecting information from our participating providers. And then we got to data collection in terms of the surveys and the interviews. We surveyed through an electronic survey through Qualtrics, we surveyed maternity home graduates and those no longer receiving services to offer critical insights on maternity homes in light of their experiences and outcomes after leaving the home. And finally, we conducted interviews with staff members and maternity home directors. And the idea was that from our interviews, these interviews could provide meaning and understanding behind the survey data that we received. So what did we find? First, in terms of what do the programs look like? Program services primarily were focused on promoting safety for young moms and their kids and providing them education and skills aimed at preparing moms for independently supporting themselves and caring for their kids. Most homes used a relationship-based approach with an emphasis on education and skill development. All the programs that we talked to provided some form of parent training, independent or life skills training, access to childcare, counseling, case management services, connecting moms with public assistance and community resources. You can see really a comprehensive approach to meeting the moms where they are to be able to figure out, to meet their needs. Programs were designed also with the idea of discharge in mind. Moms aren't going to stay at the home forever. So how are they going to transition to their next step? And homes did work on discharge planning with the moms. What were the residents like? What were these moms experiences? Our survey data indicated that maternity homes served a population with lots of needs. They were socioeconomically disadvantaged. Money was a major problem for them, for most of them. Typically, they had lots of foster care experience, and they often moved around a lot with multiple foster care placements. We connected with a lot of moms that were still in extended foster care, and we know that folks connected to Extended foster care tend to be better off than their peers who are not connected. And so the fact that we had such high levels of disadvantage among folks who are connected really shows the level of need among moms who are aging out of care. And third, the qualitative interviews, we were thinking the question is, you know, what's the context for understanding mother's experiences with maternity group homes? And our interviews showed that we have four themes. One was adversity, crisis and rejection overwhelmed mother's lives. Second, mom's high access to and use of services were tempered by their frustrations in following rules and a perceived lack of tailored or individualized services to meet their needs. Third, trust was a big issue. A lot of moms didn't have trust, and they also encountered a lot of what they termed drama in the house that led to, although they had high aspirations to further their education, get employment, find stable housing, a lot of times they were unable to fulfill those aspirations due to the lack of connection to others and to programs. And then also, finally, although mothers and providers had high aspirations, to be independent. Moms wanted to be able to just rely on themselves. A lot of times they weren't able to meet that goal because of the lack of scaffolding beneath them to support them. And the reality that as young moms, few young moms are able
0: to get by without the help of others and without the help of community. Thank you. So Diane, I want to switch over to you and ask you how you heard about the study and what made you want to get your agency involved?
3: Well, thank you so much for having us on this panel today. It's been a long time since anybody put some real concentrated effort into maternity homes. The foster care systems we have seen grow, quality standards that we try to put into place To where residential group homes now are at a whole different level than they ever were in the past. And now that we're kind of drilling it down to get into maternity homes, it was very interesting to me. And I jumped at the chance to be able to help and give some of my knowledge from doing this for 20 years to share with others. I've always had the highest level of respect for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare and what they've done, their topics were always on point. And the fact that they were willing to discuss them at this time was awesome. Some of the key issues impacting pregnant and teen mothers in foster care at this time, like Melissa just said, it'll break your heart to watch a teen mother walk out that door at 18 years old with a one month old baby And maybe she's three weeks away from getting her diploma, but she has that draw to get out of foster care and go back and give her family one more chance. Now with extended foster care, the kids have a chance to come back in. I was on that committee that helped write that legislation. And at least now they have a chance to come back in and give it a chance Because you know, just like any other teenager, no matter what we're doing as adults to try to help them, it's not welcome as a teenager. But somehow around 24, 25, when that brain's developing, they're like, oh my gosh, I want back in. I never appreciated those life skills classes. And now I do. And now I see why you were trying to teach me to balance a checkbook or a debit card anymore.
0: I think that really highlights like what you were talking about, this idea of dealing with potentially a challenging population of clients that the study findings show have great needs, complex needs, and sometimes might be a little bit resistant to engaging in those services. I also wanted to touch on what Melissa talked about earlier around really viewing the advisory panel as a partnership in this research, right? So from the workforce perspective, from you as a CEO of Hands of Mercy, and then also including folks with lived experience on that advisory panel. So I want to acknowledge that I think it takes a lot of vulnerability for agencies to come into these types of partnerships because... You never know what you're going to find. And ideally, you know, we hope that things are running beautifully and we're meeting all of our outcomes, right. And all of these things, but ultimately we know, and maybe even hope for a little bit areas where we can improve. So Diane, I'm just curious about you as the head of an agency, what helped you move past that vulnerability to want to partner with researchers in this way? Quite honestly, because there's nothing to hide. When you're running a residential
3: group home with the passion and the purpose to truly help kids, then you welcome any help you can get. And that help extends from what you guys are doing and hopefully the findings of this report. And then it will go to the Department of Children and Families. And then it trickles down into the Florida Coalition for Children And then it gets to our community-based care centers throughout the state. Then all of a sudden, this is training that will work through our case management teams. So maybe a case manager is called out to a house on a DCF call and can help that young mother by saying, hands of mercy is right here in your community. Go over there. She'll help you with diapers and a stroller or what you need. You don't have to come into care because those services are available to you. Now, maternity homes, it's the tiniest section of our Department of Children and Families, but yet somehow usually ends up costing the most because we always keep in mind, a mom and a baby equals a family. And that's what we have to do to keep going. There are so many rules with quality standards, statutes that we have to follow. That if you're not willing to come and do this kind of stuff and find out what this research is, knowing that the one line you should keep saying to yourself is, what would I do if this was my daughter? Because then all of those rules come into play and it's just parenting 101. It's not overwhelming. And we have to stop looking at all this research and thinking that it's threatening to what we do. And look at it in a positive way that we can need to be a part of it and make things better for these young moms and babies.
0: Thank you for taking that question. Melissa or Shamra, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think it's a delicate balance.
1: Having a advisory panel because you recognize, particularly with maternity group home providers, they are so busy, and I want to be cognizant of all this good work they're doing and everything they need to do. And I don't want to take up any of their time that I don't need to, but at the same time, their insights are so valuable to the work that one of my goals is to make sure that they recognize the value they can bring and that their insight is fundamental to the project's success. We have the same goal in mind. How can we better serve these moms and give them the resources that they need? And the partnership is fundamental to being able to answer that question?
2: I think one of the important, but also most challenging things about working alongside providers and those with lived experience is getting us all to speak the same language, because we're all bringing that different perspective. But I see this project as, and other research projects that I've worked on alongside providers as an opportunity to help us all start speaking the same language so we can identify those common goals. I think it helps to ensure that the work that we're doing together is sort of on target and also bringing folks from different perspectives helps, I think, expand the reach of the work as well. Piggybacking
3: on what you just said, with lived experience we can look at this as oh it's a group of girls that are pregnant or parenting when we know now it is so much more than that most of the young girls that were serving in the foster care system or after an extended foster care have mental health issues that they can't take their medications while they're pregnant and then afterwards it's trying to figure out do they really need them can we get them off some of these meds, but ultimately that is usually not the case. We're also finding that you have many girls that have been involved at some level in sex trafficking. I think as they move forward into 18, 19, and they start to rely on other people that they can't trust, that will hurt them. And they get involved in those kind of things. The reason they got into trafficking was to keep their baby, to protect and support their baby. And ultimately it will be the reason why that baby would be removed and the cycle all starts over again. So when we're looking at lived experience, it isn't just that little pregnant girl over there in the corner.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a good segue to Shift things over to Mary. So, Mary, how about you? You actually participated in this research. So, how did you hear about the study and what made you want to participate and similarly be vulnerable in sharing your experiences with researchers?
4: I heard about the study at a One Voice Impact town hall meeting. I can't remember who it was that came in and was talking about it, but I heard somebody was talking about it. And I thought, I'll do the survey and I'll participate. And then I did the survey and then I got contacted to do the follow-up interview. And so I did that. And the reason why I wanted to be a part of it is because as somebody who I spent most of my life in foster care, I had my oldest daughter when I was 16 years old and my time in foster care and in maternity group homes, it was a really, really rough time. I wasn't in good group homes. My group homes had a lot of issues. And so I think anything that I can do to help improve, you know, maternity group homes in general for future girls, anything and all that I can do to help, I want to be a part of because I don't want anybody to have to go through the things that I experienced and all the hardships that I went through when I was in those vulnerable positions Yeah, it's kind of hard, you know, opening up about everything that I went through to participate in these studies, but it's worth it because if it can help even one girl, then it's worth it.
0: And it sounds like you were well connected with the Selfless Love Foundation and One Voice Impact. Can you talk about how that relationship has maybe introduced you to some opportunities like this that you hadn't been aware of previously?
4: I have stayed pretty close with my caseworkers from foster care. I was in extended foster care until I was 23. I'm 26 now. So it wasn't that long ago, but I had a really good relationship with her. And because I was out of extended foster care and I didn't have any you know, help, she thought that me joining One Voice Impact and Selfless Love might give me kind of a community of people that I could you know, talk to and opportunities to help improve the system and things like that. And so I joined it and it's just, it's something that I feel is worth my time and something that, you know,
0: I enjoy doing. And this is just kind of an out of curiosity question that has piqued my interest from this conversation. So we've worked with selfless love foundation in a number of different capacities, and they've been a really great partner for us at the Institute in connecting us with young adults like yourself, who are interested in doing some of that advocacy based out of their own experiences. Does that make a difference for you as far as when somebody approaches you about participating in a research study or a podcast or something like that? Does it help to have the support of an organization like Selfless Love, for example, who can vouch for those researchers and say, this might be an opportunity that you're interested in versus getting a random email or text message, you know, like participate in this survey.
4: Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I probably wouldn't have participated in a survey had somebody just sent me an email and said, Hey, do you want to do this? I probably wouldn't have, but because it was brought up with the Selfless Love Foundation and OVI, I knew that it was a legitimate thing. If they were bringing it up, I knew that it was something that was actually going to hopefully help. That's pretty much the only reason why I participated in it.
0: I think that's a great insight, especially for us researchers to always be aware of. Youth with lived experience may have developed relationships with other partners that we just don't have. It's really important to make sure that our participants or potential participants feel safe in sharing their stories with us. So researchers and evaluators might consider leaning into those partnerships when thinking about recruitment. So I really appreciate you sharing that insight with how your relationship with selfless love and One Voice Impact facilitated your participation in the study. Oh, of course. Shamra, could you tell us a little bit more about the advisory panel, just kind of the thinking around that, what worked well, what you might do differently next time? The biggest
2: impetus for us to establish the advisory panel as part of this was Melissa and I recognize that while we bring one set of expertise, we don't know everything. And in fact, there's certain perspectives that we just in our position don't have access to but we recognize that those are important if we want to get the whole picture and so really the goal of the advisory panel is to bring together the multiple important perspectives and really to capitalize on all of that expertise that we're bringing to the project as a result when we're working with providers and mothers we used our advisory panel a lot to help us develop our survey questions helping us connect to moms, like independent living coordinators. So just a number of ways, whenever they had advice for us, we were listening and we gained a lot from their participation in this. I think we had a great panel and what I come away from this experience, feeling like that was such a valuable part of this and that we've got a better outcome as a result of that. But also through the process of just doing the research, I think through our conversations with providers and mothers, what we learned about was maybe some other folks that we might want to be talking with who also are working alongside the mothers and the providers and have a unique perspective to offer, like the independent living coordinators, for example, or the Department of Children and Families case managers. When we continue doing this work, We'd want to continue to work alongside those with lived experiences and the providers, but maybe it would be expanding that those folks who were inviting onto it. So I think maybe that's kind of a lesson in hindsight. And some of that is like the more you do the work, the more you learn and become familiar with other folks and then kind of just build from that.
0: And I think you bring up a really great point about continuing to identify champions in this work so that we can take what we've learned from this study and actually do something with it. And I know Diane was saying that that was her sort of excitement around joining in on this project was what are we going to be able to do with the findings of this? And so I think certainly expanding that team and having more contacts is helpful in that. So Diane, you sat in on the advisory panel as a professional representing Hands of Mercy. What was that process like for you? The process was amazing. I think that
3: the openness of this process was what was the best. It wasn't like a gotcha moment. Everybody felt like they could just share ideas. Some of the things that I might suggest to do next time is just as we met in a zoom call the first time and put faces with names we probably should have done that with the young adults because i think they would have just felt a little better talking to you guys if they saw oh there's miss diane these are people i can trust so maybe a meet and greet zoom call and i know that you wanted to meet with them on their own and get information and that was fine i think moving forward We have definitely talked about some barriers that have come up like in the WIC program, for instance, with the girls not being able to really have enough formula towards the end of the month or that the food that they have in their houses has to be marked. Well, if you're in a group home and you're trying to make something the nicest setting, a home-like setting. I don't wanna open a refrigerator and see six girls' names on milk cartons. So I think that WIC should do away and just put a little exception in there that if you're in a group home, you don't have to put your name on your cheese and your milk and your eggs. That makes it seem very institutional. The other thing I think is with the barriers that we have discussed, bringing those people in the next time would be great as part of our panel, I would suggest maybe bringing in some education groups where maybe some more sensitivity could be taught in the schools to our foster care kids, because if they go to school and a teacher's like, that's it, you're suspended for a week, Now they're another week behind in school. They feel like they failed at another thing when maybe just holding that back for a second and giving us a call, letting us go to the school, use some trust-based relational intervention skills, some good nurturing techniques could save that girl her education. I think that in the future, we need to make some better community connections for the kids too. I think by making those connections as a group home or as the Department of Children and Family, vocationally, the kids could use that help. One of the things that we're looking at is opening a prep vocational school. So where our 17, 18, 19 year olds, they come to this little school and we prep them to even go to a vocational school where you're talking about not using cuss words in an interview, having a really good resume, having some appropriate clothes to wear, lining up transportation for them. It's like practicing to go out for a job. I think in the past, we've done an amazing job. And Mary, I think you'll agree with the extended foster care program with PES, offering everyone a four-year education is unbelievable, but most kids aren't ready for that. And they felt intimidated, and then they weren't prepared to go out for a job. So what happened? They're stuck in the middle doing nothing. And that's the worst thing that can happen. Right now, I think it was about 22% of kids are actually taking advantage of the independent living program and the rest are just dropping out of it. And we have spent years, and I think our legislators have really tried to put a lot of money into our extended foster program to help kids. I think we just need to work on a little bit more nurturing. And the message has to be the same throughout the state. Case managers, independent living workers, group homes. Mary, was it the most confusing thing in the world to get ready to turn 18 and try to figure out what all the rules were?
4: Yeah, it was It was a really hard transition. I thankfully took advantage of my PES. I got two college degrees. I'm actually back in college now. I took advantage of it, but I got kicked out of school a lot because I just wasn't <laughs> I wasn't ready for the responsibility of it. I thankfully I came back every time I got kicked out and I finished my degrees, but it was it was a very hard transition just going from not having any real freedom, not having any real responsibilities to suddenly all the freedom I could ever ask for but also all the responsibilities I could ever ask for. And that's where you can really get lost in the middle of keeping that balance of fulfilling your responsibilities and enjoying your freedom without going too far on either end. Cause I knew a lot of other kids who ended up in jail and prison and in big trouble, homeless on the streets, because all that freedom was taken advantage of. So that's a really important thing. I think when, teens are 16, 17, right before they're getting out is to really sit down and prepare them to be on their own so that they don't just, as I say, while out and get in a bunch of trouble.
0: What I love about this particular conversation is it really sheds light on the interest of the Institute and why we were so interested in partnering with Melissa and Shamra on this study to corroborate what Diana is saying, the legislature is very interested in youth and young adults aging out of care in life skill development. We've recently completed some studies around that ourselves for the legislature. And I think what was really interesting to us about this particular proposal from Dr. Rady and Dr. Bolstute was that it focused on a very specific faction of those youth. So all of these things that I hear Mary sharing with us right now are similar things that we've heard from many youth and young adults who are aging out of care. And then going back to what you mentioned earlier, Diane, there's this additional complexity that these are also young mothers who are trying to navigate new motherhood and very specific needs in addition to the other needs that we're regularly seeing among youth transitioning out of care, generally speaking. So I really appreciate both of your perspective on really the unique needs of this population. And Diane, you just sort of touching on the value that you saw in this partnership and in moving results forward into meaningful change.
1: Lisa, if I could just add as well, we found out that moms aging out of care face lots and lots of obstacles. And when I got on a call with Diane to discuss the findings, I was looking at all the different areas that we need to help moms. And it's a bit overwhelming. And Diane was extremely targeted. And I was like, I don't know what the next step. There's so many things that need to happen. There's so many practices and policies that need to change. And I don't remember if you remember what you said, Diane, but you told me, you said, all we need to do is get the right people in the room, get on a call, identify the barriers. Then we need to get the people involved in those systems that are involved in those barriers, get them on the call. And then we can make slight tweaks to policy to be able to make the changes to better serve the population. And I think that speaks to the value of this advisory panel to help me to see, okay, this is how we can make small changes instead of being paralyzed by the gravity of the changes that need to be made.
3: That's a really good point. It's like we just talked about WIC. Another one would be With Early Learning Coalition, everybody goes, oh, daycare is free for teen mother." Oh, they're in school. It's not free. You have to pay parent portions. There are fees. When you sign the kids up, there's fees for everything. It is not free. Reduced daycare, yes. But in order to get your kid into a decent daycare, which we want all of our kids in a nice one, You have to pay those fees and they add up real quick. And the maternity home covers that. Remember who it always goes back to. And if we don't keep that teen mother in mind and her little baby, that baby's just going to come right back into care and we start all over again.
0: It's so interesting to hear all these different perspectives around this age group and services for youth that are transitioning out of care, because similar to what you were sharing about The hidden fees of daycare. We've heard similar stories in other research around pests. And it sounds like Mary's had a a relatively good experience with pests. And we've had other youth say, well, gosh, you know, I'm required to be an X number of credit hours per semester, but it doesn't really work with my major based on what's being offered at that time. So there can be these sort of hidden barriers that We may not always see on the surface of a program that is intended to help might actually be creating some additional stressors for the youth that are trying to take advantage of them. I think that really speaks to the importance of those youth and young adults sharing their experiences with us and being able to give that insight on those things. Mary, could you elaborate on that a little bit and talk about what it was like for you to share your experiences in this particular study? Yeah, of course.
4: For me, it was, it's been emotional. It's like I said, I'm pretty far out of being in foster care. And so I didn't think it was quite so raw still, but it's been a little hard, but it also, at the same time, it feels good to talk about it with people that it can help to talk about it in ways that are going to help other people.
0: Did you ever have any concerns about what you were sharing or how that information would be used? No,
4: no, I didn't. I trust that this institute and this research program is not going to go and sell my data to some hackers online.
0: Was there anything in particular that helped you feel confident that this was a safe space to share your story?
4: I felt pretty confident considering it's the Institute of Child Welfare that It wasn't just some random company that I don't know anything about, you know, the Florida Institute of Child Welfare. It's a well-known and upstanding institute, so it made me definitely feel a lot safer being a part of this.
0: So, Melissa, I'm going to shift over to you. So, based on what you learned from this study and your other work, what's next? Well,
1: I think part of what I learned from the study was just how much... Having folks that are doing the day to day work and have the lived experience, how important it is to start there and to form relationships, to listen and to answer their questions as well as my own and recognize their insight. So, moving forward, I plan to continually have interactions and panels and set the project up so that those who know the most about various aspects of the topic are able to provide information to me to be able to collect the best data we can to learn the most that we can about kids and families in the child welfare system. Also, a part of the project that we didn't talk a lot about, but that was one of our findings was the role that Department of Children and Families played in young moms' lives, and particularly the threat of investigation or investigations happening. And that was when we interviewed moms, it came up a lot that they were very concerned about false allegations and interacting with the system and how they related in terms of making sure they had stable housing to be able to keep their child, breaking the cycle of. Department and Children and Families' involvement and foster care is at the forefront of people who are trying to help to improve the child welfare system, but it's also at the forefront of moms who are aging out of foster care as well. A lot of times, trust was another big issue that came up and for moms and providers. Providers recognized that trust was a lofty goal. It was hard to gain trust among maternity home residents because of their histories and the fact that people have continually let them down in the past. Well, the fact that they feel they can't trust folks, it makes it very hard to be a parent, especially after they've aged out of care and they've left homes, to be able to make it alone is nearly impossible. And so I'm interested in figuring out what are parents involved in the child welfare system? What are their connections to others? And what is their connection to government support, too? We've heard a thread of this idea of self reliance and they want to be able to do everything independently. But again, that's perhaps not realistic for any mother. I want to figure out how we can help mothers develop relationships and relationship skills and be able to use the public resources available to them without stigma to be able to best serve parents and families involved in the child welfare system. And
3: honestly, Melissa, that's quite a balancing act because just as we know, raising our own children. There were times I didn't trust my kids walking out that door. <laughs> and here we are, as this is our job, no matter how attached we get and how much we love them, it's still our job. And we have a huge responsibility now on the child welfare system with the number one priority of keeping them safe. So when you think about that balancing act of, of course I wanna trust, I've raised 1,505 teenagers. You think the day they walk in, I don't want to trust them? Well, here's the deal. At Handsome Mercy, I'll give you that trust. Now, don't give me a reason not to. Don't get on cell phone websites that you shouldn't be on. Honor the curfew date that you told me. Go to school when you're supposed to be there and show me your report card. So you keep your word and I'm going to keep my word. We'll usually find with the teenagers who feel, oh, you didn't trust me or you didn't. It's because they really weren't doing what they should have done and they're guilty and they feel bad and they don't want to do that stuff, but they're getting out of it. And sometimes it could have been smoking pot. Well, that now doesn't seem like a big thing to anybody, but when we first started Group Homes 20 years ago, yeah, you probably need to let someone know That there is illegal substance in a group home you have with 20 children in it. I always tell the girls, and Mary, I would say this to you, too. Any rule I have at my house ever is one you're going to have at yours. Because when you care about somebody, you're going to put some of those rules into place to protect them and keep them safe. Nobody's doing it to be mean or, oh, you just don't like me. That isn't the case at all. So it's a a real balancing act, that's for sure.
0: You know, Diane, just in listening to your explanation of the rules and in contrast to some of the young women's experiences that we read about in the findings, right, that balance of understanding a need for rules for safety purposes and also having that feeling among these young mothers that they're feeling, I don't know what the right word would be. I don't want to say the word policed, but that they're feeling restricted or overly controlled by them.
3: You're right. But when they get older, they'll see it wasn't a policing thing at all. It's the passion that we do our work with. And we did it for our own children. When Melissa brought up some things that came through in this survey, and I was like, okay, I would have done that for my kid. Okay. I would have done that for my kid too. So when you look at it that way, and I think only the young moms, as they get older, appreciate that. And then they start to look at it that way as their kids enter their teenage years.
0: (laughs) Mary, I saw you when Melissa was talking earlier, kind of nodding your head along. Did you have anything that you wanted to add?
4: Yeah. On the subject of the threat of DCF, that is the most terrifying thing. And I think that's one of the biggest things, that needs looked at and worked on with teen moms aging out of the foster care system is because that's the biggest threat is once they age out, are they going to be able to keep things together enough and not lose their kid? Or is somebody going to get mad at them and call in a false report and they're going to get their kid taken away? And let me tell you from my own personal experience, I had that happen. I got my daughter taken away because I had a mental health crisis. And I got Baker acted. And thankfully, thankfully, three days later, I got out and I went to court and they pretty much gave her straight back to me. But that was the scariest moment of my life. And that's something that I think needs the biggest work is the impending threat of having your kid removed for one little mess up, both while you're still in the maternity group home and after aging out, because I saw it happen to multiple girls in the group home over things that I didn't think were, you know, worthy of having their child removed for. That might've just been my perspective at the time or, you know, in my own personal experience, I don't trust DCF. I've had a lot of, a lot of problems with them. So I think that's something that's a very, very serious problem.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Mary. And I think that's really powerful in terms of, I I feel like it's hitting on a lot of things that we're talking about here. We've got three interested parties in this, right? You have a young mother, you have folks who are running maternity homes, trying to be supportive, implementing rules in some ways to try and keep you safe and keep you you know, out of trouble, but still having that sense of distrust of the maternity home providers of the department. And I hear what Melissa is saying in terms of we've got to figure this out. How can we make accessing support not scary. How can we make accessing support something that feels safe to do? And in the best interest of the mother's well-being and their children's well-being without it feeling like, oh no, I'm going to have my child removed from my care just because I'm admitting that I'm experiencing something that's challenging right now and I could use some support around it. So I appreciate you sharing that example, Mary.
4: Yeah, of course. It's definitely a big issue with trust as a teen mom, to be able to feel comfortable saying, hey, I'm having a mental health crisis. I need help without the fear of them going, oh, you're going to be Baker Acted. We're going to take your kid away. When you get out of your Baker Act, then we'll figure it out. So that's the most terrifying thing. And that's that's definitely, I think, a problem that's caused a lot of my trust issues with the system. And probably a lot of trust issues that other parents have and teen moms have in the system is being able to admit that they're having a hard time without that fear of them losing custody of their children, rather than being helped when that's what they're really asking for is help, not their kids to be taken.
0: Absolutely. And I wanna circle back for a moment to the research side of this and how, from a bird's eye view, how I see this playing out in some ways and some of the work that we're doing at the Institute, which is that when the trust is broken, that can extend to anybody who's trying to provide services or provide some type of support in the child welfare realm. Even if the issue might be with the department, maybe that shows up as distress when somebody enters a maternity home for services, right? It can show up in our research. I will share that we've had youth who have said, although I will say, Mary, I was very glad to hear that you felt comfortable sharing your story with us as institute-based researchers, though we have had youth before who have said, aren't you just another part of the system? I don't know that I want to share my story with you, right? And I think, as we've talked about today, having that perspective is so crucial in us understanding the complexities of these issues. But we have to do a really good job of not only building our own trust with youth and young adults and with families in the system, or who have been served by the system, but also understanding that There are trust issues sort of baked in that have been there potentially long before we as researchers or evaluators show up to try to learn from you all. And so I think that's an important reminder for the research side of things.
3: And in all fairness to DCF, I mean, let's go back and things have changed a lot. DCF isn't walking around wanting to take anyone's child. Anything that we have that goes on in the maternity home, I always feel like they're there for additional support, for additional services I may need for a child. If one of the girls did get acted because she has custody of her own child, I would just call and verify that it's okay for me to keep the baby for her for three days and then hopefully be able to welcome her back and be able to get her meds leveled off with the assistance of what our house moms would do to help that teenager. I think the complexity of all of this comes into play when the teen mother is 18 and really hasn't made the commitment to working extended foster care or PES. I think they get kind of in the middle with, hey, my boyfriend's family really wants me to go live with them, or my mom that you know, I've waited for for a long time like you said before, the medication management, somebody's handed you your meds for two years or whatever before at the proper time and here it is and here's your water. And then all of a sudden now kids are on their own to do that. So I think that one more year of the extended foster care help, especially for teen mothers, is imperative to help them we have keys to independence, which is an amazing program, but if you didn't get all your driving hours in, which is really hard to get, then you have to wait to your 18th birthday. Well, on your 18th birthday, I want to take you to go get your driver's license because you've done all the keys to independence stuff on your 18th birthday. Like you can't sign a lease until then. So everything is due like in that first two or three days, it's so overwhelming. So Even if it's a couple of months where the community-based care centers are like, listen, just stay at your maternity home, your baby's in daycare, you're compliant with your meds, you have three more months to graduate. I think the prep that we need to do before their 18th birthday needs to be solid and consistent throughout the state so that no kid ever feels nervous about turning 18. We call it 17 and a half itis like they are <laughs> like, no matter what you tell them, it's not sinking in until they turn 18. And then they say, well, I don't know all this stuff. OK, well, let's review it again. And that's when they need us. They are the most. Otherwise, they're going to go to someone else that they shouldn't trust in most cases. And that's where everybody goes down different roads, I think.
0: Shamra, I wanted to ask you if there was anything that you wanted to add. I know Melissa talked about what was next on her agenda as far as where to go with this next. Did you have anything that you wanted to add as far as what you plan to do as next steps?
2: It was an exploratory study, you know, where we're just trying to get a sense of who the moms are, you know, what are the challenges they're facing and what are the services that the maternity homes are providing? What do they look like? And we learned so much from the experience. And I think one direction would be trying to identify, you know, so for among those moms who do find successful outcomes, who do end up with multiple college degrees and doing well, what were those things that helped put you on that path? And really kind of digging down into that, I think that's how we start building the evidence base around maternity homes that then later informs policy. It informs training. And so you can kind of identify what are those core things. So that's a long research trajectory. Maybe it looks like more qualitative work and really trying to talk with moms to ask them those questions to dig a little bit deeper into, building on some of the questions and things we were talking about in this initial exploratory study. So that's at least one of the next steps that I'd like to see happen.
0: That's great. And certainly will require additional participation from folks like Mary, who have graciously shared their experiences as a form of self-advocacy and advocacy for others. So Mary, I'd like to end with you and just ask you, what is your number one recommendation? What's the number one thing that you would like child welfare researchers to know about collaborating with children and families with lived experience in child welfare?
4: I would definitely say the number one thing I want them to know and to understand is to to not be judgmental and to just be open and accepting and forgiving towards those kids because it's really easy to make mistakes when you're going through all the things that you go through when you're involved in the foster care system. And so when they can be understanding and accepting and forgiving, that's the first way to building a good relationship and being
0: able to actually help. I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today. If you're interested in learning more about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.ficw.fsu.edu. You can also follow the Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, at FSU Child Welfare. Thank you to our executive producer, Mariana Tutwiler, our assistant director of communications, Emily Joyce, and our audio engineer and editor, Izzy Craig. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Lisa Magruder for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare.